Invest in yourself today with our Insider Pro product, which gives you the career path to reach the next step in your cybersecurity journey. Join today on Cyberate.it using the discount code PODCAST. You're listening to the 401 Access Denied Podcast. I'm Mike Rowan, VP of Engineering and CISO at Cyberate. Please join me and my co-host, Joseph Carson, Chief Security Scientist at Thycotic, as we discuss the latest news and attempt to make cybersecurity accessible, usable, and fun. Be sure to check back every two weeks for new episodes. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another awesome podcast that we have for you today, the 401 Access Denied. Uh, I'm Joseph Carson, one of your co-hosts, uh, based in Talon, Estonia. And uh, we have some special guests on the show today to really talk about some important history lessons around cyber war, cyber defense, and some creative innovations. So, you know, I'm Joseph Carson, Chief Security Scientist at Thycotic, and uh, I'm joined here with my co-host, uh, the awesome Mike Gruen, MG. Um, so, Mike, you want to take it from here? Yeah, sure. So Mike Gruen, uh, VP of Engineering and CISO here at Cyberary. Um, and yeah, we're uh, here joined by Raul. I'll let him uh, introduce himself from Estonian uh, government. Yes, uh, good good day for everyone. I'm Raul uh, Rick, and I work uh, in Estonia in the, in the government sector as the National Cyber Security Policy Director. And uh, my main responsibility is to take care that the Estonian cyber space is uh, safe and sound. Awesome. That's a very, very big responsibility that you have. Um, it's uh, something that you know many, many countries around the world are always challenged with. And I think um, just to give a lot of our audience, probably they've heard me saying about Estonia m- many times on our podcast, and uh, talking about you know some of the great innovations and you know even around uh, the identity system that Estonia has, could you give us just a little bit of background about you know Estonia as a country and a little bit about the history and probably for the audience maybe a geographical lesson as well into where it's located. Mm. Yes, Estonia is located in the north, north in Europe. So uh, above us there is a Finland. In the left side there is Sweden. In the right side there is a big, nice, good neighbor Russia, and the south side there is a Latvia. So uh, we considered ourselves being as the northern Europeans. Absolutely, and it's. I think it was it. Uh, you know, I, I've been here for many years. Uh, for me, it's nineteen years now in Estonia. I do find that you know, from a culture perspective, it is very, very similar to that of Finland and Sweden. So, from a culture perspective, I do feel I'm very much a Nordic country. Um, so that's something kind of for me that you know, relation-wise. But Estonia has had a very interesting journey as a digital society. And I always find it very fascinating into some of the innovations. Of course, you know, most people probably are familiar with Estonia from the likes of, you know, Skype. Um, They're familiar, you know, many people Mm -hmm. are still, you know, using and familiar with Skype today. It's it's helped them through uh, a lot of the remote working. Um, And also from things like Pipedrive as well and TransferWise. Some people don't know that those companies are based in Estonia. Can you give us a little bit about Estonia's kind of, let's say, the journey as a digital society and some of those lessons learned over the years? Yes, certainly. Um, uh, for us, the digital development started actually in the in, in the beginning of nineties when we uh, got our independence back. Mm-hmm. So our history, short history, has been that after the Second World War, 
we were occupied by uh, Russia, by Soviet Union, actually. And of course, we were not happy about that. And finally, in the beginning of the 90s, we, we were able to get our freedom back. And then we were... We had a big question that how to develop uh, society as a general, but also that uh, what what is the most efficient way of doing that? Because Estonian population is not big. Uh, it's only 1.5 million people, so not much. And uh, we have to figure out that uh, how to how to get uh, how to get the efficiency and effectiveness in our our uh, daily activities. And uh, during this time, we also see that um, uh, digital systems uh, started to, to develop. Uh, so there were many, uh, many different innovations uh, happened already. And uh, the 90s were the years where a lot of different things, uh, you know, happened. There, the internet uh, got quicker and, uh, and the speed got better. And, and also we saw different applications uh, uh, coming into service and et cetera, et cetera. So we thought logically that, uh, okay, the ICT systems basically save our time. And we can, if you use them, we can, we can compete with other countries. And of course, Estonian goals were that uh, we wanted to become be, uh, part of European Union, the NATO. So basically, we had to compete with the big boys in the league. So we were the small one. And you know, if you go to the, if you go and play with the big guys, they don't care how big or small you are. You have to be, you know, quick and efficient. So we saw that if you use ICT and if you do it well, we can actually uh, compete with them. So it was all about transparency, effectiveness, and also competitiveness, economic competitiveness. And uh, that's why we started to use ICT. And it seems to be that we did it quite uh, quite well. So as you mentioned, Skype is, uh, comes from Estonia and Pipedrive and other TransferWise and many, many other, other uh, innovations, like Bolt as well that competes with Uber and et cetera, et cetera. So it was kind of a logical, logical way to do things when you are able to start your country all over again. So, uh, so that's that's how our journey started. Do you Absolutely. think there was uh, like a, uh, an advantage to the fact that you were smaller that that made it maybe uh, a little bit easier than if you were you know larger and started starting over? I'm curious. Uh, actually, I don't think that, it, uh, that the ICT development depends on the size of the country. I think we had, it, it was rather the aspect that we, uh, our political system was not, uh, how to say, matured yet. So our politicians were able to make decisions that in bigger or or all the countries is really, really hard. Like, for example, in the United States, you have certain understanding how you ensure privacy and what are the rights of the normal people, you know, where guns and et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But we didn't have that. So we we look at the ICT as a possibility. And we were, I think, because of that, we were able to innovate so quickly in the government sector. Absolutely. And I think that's one thing, Mike, that we've always discussed previously, you know, when we talked about things from a digital perspective in the U.S., that it's more likely going to happen, uh, you know, because of the political blocking issues there, that it's more likely going to happen at a state level right. than it will happen at a federal level. And we see that just, you know, it's it's more the more kind of the kind of limitations of a political be able to agree and move forward. And I think I agree with Estonia that, you know, at the time that, you know, if you don't have those political barriers, then you can innovate very quickly 
and adapt and accept the change as well quickly as well. And I think Raul, one of the also factors for me is that it's it's about two two items. Is one is the, the government's ability to to you know plan and agree the strategy moving forward, uh, but it's also the ability for the citizens to accept and use it as well um, and get the advantages and benefits from it. Um, I think that's one of the critical things is that they see um, it as an enabler for them versus that something as a uh, you know it's just an, a, an additional check uh, that many you know governments put in place. Do you see that you know the, how, how accepting has the citizens been of the ITC you know uh, sector and solutions that the government's been rolling out? Yeah, very good questions. I, I just comment one aspect that you, you mentioned that maybe this innovation should or could happen in the United States at the federal or, or state level, not in federal level. I, I actually don't think that it's possible because the the the, the way how we use at least. The ICT is that it has to happen at least at the at the state level or mm-hmm. in Estonia, I mean, but in US in the federal level because the the systems are connected and uh, you you simply don't get the benefits out uh, of the uh, implementation of ICT if if you if you keep it only at the state level. So, for example, uh, I think the uh, the innovation that. Uh, that we did first was the uh, digital identification. So it's actually a security measure. But the, the basic problem with the internet connectivity was that nobody trusted really that uh, who's the other side. So we solved the problem of the unsecurity of the internet. And uh, if you do it in the, at the state level, then all these services you can have only at the state level. But that mm-hmm. doesn't give the efficiency to you. Uh, what we try to do is that... Uh, we uh, started to issue this uh, ID cards or digital identification for everybody. So the companies, the private sector, public sector, citizens, uh, they were all connected to the same uh, ecosystem. So every, everybody was, was able to identify themselves for the others. So if you, if you were a businessman, you were able to do that for the government. The government uh, was able to give... Uh, whatever they had to give the authorizations or, or some licenses or, or whatever was there to the private sector and citizens were able to use the, the whole ecosystem. So the main innovation was that the securing the internet, uh, the way that all different parties, like uh, citizens, government, the public sector and, and business sector was able to use that. So that was the real innovation. Absolutely, and that's that's critical. I think one of the things that you, I think you mentioned that is for me is is you know really important is that you know everyone's using the same system um, is what's critical. You know, there's no two tier systems that you know for one you know, difference for businesses and for uh, government, and also the transparency as well. I think that was really critical. Is that you know the citizens can log into the systems and see their own data and the accuracy, and also update it themselves. Um, so you know that I, I, for me is also building the trust. Uh, between the citizens and the government. Uh, do you want to mention, kind of comment around, you know, how is that trust uh, kind of, um, you know, being maintained and uh, what's the government doing around, you know, making sure that, you know, the transparency and trust is there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think it started um, the way that uh, the, one of the first services was the uh, tax declaration that government simply uh, simplified for the citizens so we the, the government was able to gather all the existing information according to the regulations and uh, pre-fill the, the tax declaration for citizens so 
before it was like, uh, uh, I think there were like uh, hundreds of different pages that we had to fill on paper. And it was a really painful process. So once it was automated, and uh, from the citizen's point of view, it meant simply that I log into the system, I identify myself with a digital identification, so it's a trust, uh, trusted system, and I just checked whether or not everything is correct, and I, I, I pressed OK. So my tax declaration was done in five minutes. So, and because we didn't see any incidents uh, with the system for many years, people started to trust it. And because it was so simple, people didn't only trust the system, but they started to demand or actually expecting that other government activities happened the same way. So nobody wanted to go to the to the service center if there was a system that did the work for you. And then you just check it as a, you know, as a boss and you, you pressed OK. So... I think this uh, trustworthiness of the system and other, other, on the other hand, the comfortability that came with this digitalization uh, were the factors that uh, created the trust and, and uh, created also huge demand. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges in the U.S. I mean, I think our, our country is sort of founded on this notion of don't trust the government. So you have, <laughs> like, there's a cultural, like, there's, there's just that, that makes it very, very challenging, especially at the federal level. Um, when you think about that, we have a. Um... But you know, we actually we actually control the government. The citizens control the government because, by the law, by the law and regulations, governments always have certain right to have your data. But uh, if you don't have the digital system, you simply don't know what kind of data government has about you. But we have this oversight, so uh, the government has responsibility to show me as a citizen, what kind of data government has and how they use that. So I can check from the system when the policeman checked me last or, or when they stopped me and what, or, or what kind of fine I have got for speeding too much, for example, et cetera, et cetera. So I had this overview. Yeah. And for me, one of the things is that, you know, that that's what's, you know, really cr- critical. And, and I find that I think Estonia really evolved into that the government is really truly become a true service provider to the citizens. That's kind of how I make the comparison is that it has become a government service provider providing services to the citizen. And it's the, it's the citizens who are the boss and, and the ability to um, audit, the ability to see you know, what's happening to their data, keep it up to date, keep it accurate in order for the government to provide better services continuously to the citizens. Well, I think that's what's crucial. And it's one of the biggest differences that it's not about, you know, leaving the government to make the decisions, but it's about making sure that the government's doing everything they can to provide better services to the citizens. Uh, exactly. I, I, I actually, when you mentioned that, I started to think that uh, if I have ever thought the way that government uh, has only the right to decide on certain things, because I have always thought the way that uh, we have the government because we want certain common services from the government. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the mentality throughout Estonia, that citizens uh, have this perception that the reason why we have the government is because they should provide certain services to us. And digitalization is, of course, one of the, one of the things there. Absolutely. 
And, you know, along this digital journey, there's always bumps in the road. And so there's always sometimes challenges. And I think one of the kind of more widely documented and, and talked about one, even in many conferences that I go to around the world, is you know, the cyber attack that happened back in 2007. Um, and I'm, you know, being, being here at the time, I remember there was, you know, some even violence in the streets, there was disruptions, there was a major denial of service. Can you talk a bit about, you know, the experience that was happening then and, and what did the government change uh, as a result of that? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a quite famous case. Uh, what sim- simply happened was that uh, uh, the Russian government didn't like much that Estonia is an independent state and uh, they started to organize riots on the streets. And also, as I remember right, uh, we had uh, four uh, Russian parliamentarians coming to Estonia, they actually demanded the change of the government. So it was a bigger uh, situation, just not, not just the cyber cyber attack against Estonia, but at the same time, when these riots started on the streets by the organized by Russia and and uh, conducted through the Russian minority in Estonia, uh, at the same time we started to experience massive cyber attacks. And I have to mention that before that, we already had implemented electronic identification and the systems were actually secure. But uh, what the Russian hackers were actually able to do, uh, they were able to conduct uh, a denial of service attack against Estonia. So basically, they jammed our network traffic, just like in the physical world. Somebody comes and with a lot of different cars and vehicles and this just jams the, the traffic. So that's exactly the same thing happened to in Estonia, so they tried to, uh, to, to try to cut Estonia off from the rest of the world. So our internet connectivity didn't work well, and they also tried to intrude certain systems that uh, they were not able to do. But the jamming was the main thing. And of course, what we did uh, was very simple. We first uh, started to cooperate with other countries. We cut off the bad traffic uh, uh, to the Estonia, so we were able to. Uh, maintain first our internal internet connectivity, but later also the connectivity to the rest of the world. And uh, the main lessons learned was from this time that, uh, okay, we can we can certainly, or we have to ensure the, the basic level of, of security, but if something like that happens, then we need a special and such certain capabilities to deal with these um, uh, bigger attacks against us as well. So we started to develop our uh, emergency planning in cyber sector, we, we created uh, certain capabilities for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs so they were able to communicate with other countries uh, about this issue. After that, also the international computer incident response teams mm-hmm. community started to develop. So there are many different things that happened after that. But uh, during 2007, there wasn't these uh, capabilities in place. So, yeah. Yeah, I remember actually, you know, that uh, Estonia was one of the first to actually establish that, you know, the CERT teams. And actually that foundation mm-hmm. of the CERT teams as well was also kind of uh, had helped establish many CERT teams around the world. I know that the Estonian CERT team trained uh, and helped set up the Irish CERT team, helped uh, set up the New Zealand mm-hmm. recently, um, Australia. So many countries around the world have also, you know, gained from that knowledge and have benefited from it. Something's really kind of uh, putting in. And I think it really, one thing I'd like to mention as well is back then, I remember 
Um, there was two two items I remember that one was the establishment of you know the, the Cyber Defense League, uh, which came together as a result mm. of that, and has also grown uh, in in numbers and in in practice since then. Um, so that was one area, and there was also um, around 2008. There's also the setup of the NATO Cyber Defense Center of Excellence, and also the discussions around with mm. the European Organization for Security about how to because the there was two items was the DDoS attack itself. And it was the second biggest DDoS attack at the time. The first one, I think, went back to 2001, which is the Reagan DDoS attack. And this was the second biggest one since then. It was significant. And uh, as a result of that, mm-hmm. you know, the Cyber Defense Center of Excellence set up. Uh, but I'd also like to kind of mention maybe a little bit about when the data embassy concept, because that's something I think, for me, was a, a great idea in order to become decentralized, uh, to have you know not one target of attack that allowed the country to almost become a true uh, digital society as well. So first, can I, have you mentioned a little bit about the mm-hmm. Cyber Defense League and how important it is, and maybe should you know that be an example mm-hmm. for other countries to maybe work with the public sector uh, as well? Uh, yes, first about the Cyber Defense League. The, the, the necessity for the Cyber Defense League comes from the from from, from the. Uh, calculation that uh, uh, none of the um, uh, organizations have enough resources if uh, something, some big incident or crisis in the cyber sector happens. So uh, usually if something big happens, we need the support. And the question was that how to organize the support for these organizations being under attack or uh, experiencing uh, bigger or longer-lasting cyber cyber incident or crisis. So we we thought that uh, we have uh, this voluntary military organization in Estonia that we call Defense League. It's similar to U.S. National Guard. Mm -hmm. And we thought that we use this organization in order to organize these experts that we have in the cyber field who are willing to uh, support uh, other organizations being under attack. And that's how this Cyber Defense League idea started. And so far we have developed it. And the main idea is that they they organize themselves the way that if somebody needs support being under attack, then they can support them. So that's the whole idea and concept. Mm -hmm. And it has worked quite well. Uh, Regarding the data embassy idea, um, that's another uh, issue that we all face is that um, uh, uh, the, the cyber attacks are global and cyber incidents are global as well. And we have all different uh, threats that are target that were, or, or that we have to consider ensuring the safety of our cyberspace. And um, uh, for example, if the, if, the, if the sun gets too active, it might uh, generate electromagnetic pulse and, and everything but is one side of the world or, or the earth could be harmed. So the idea is that because our, we are so dependent on the digital systems, we have to keep our data, not only in Estonia, but other uh, places around the world as well. So ideally, we would like to keep our data in Estonia for example, also in US and also in Australia, so different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And now when we want to do that, there is a question that if we put our data in other countries' jurisdiction, then how to ensure that the other countries' security service or, or police or, or whatever is there 
doesn't have the right to go there and take our data or to do something with it. So that's why we started to develop this data concept. So when we keep our data in another country, then this, con- this data has to be considered as the part of Estonia or, or, or being our uh, property. So that's how it started. I remember many, many discussions uh, around that topic with Davi and, and others at the time. Um, so kind of one of the things I, I actually never thought about the, you know, for me, it was always about uh, making sure that Estonia could, you know, even from a cyber attack, that also decentralized into multiple countries. So it even would trigger something like Article 5 in NATO as well. If you want to attack Estonia, you'd have to, you know, target all of those locations um, simultaneously or together. Um, but yeah, I never thought about it as such a bigger concept. You know, I was struggled why would the U.S. maybe want to do a data embassy idea? Um, because they have so much land space as well. So I never really thought about what, what happens if, if a true natural disaster does happen. How can, you know, and that's, that scale, how can you can continue as a society with that much damage? And, um, but yes, you know, major you know, impacts, asteroids, whether it be, or, or solar flares that, you know, can have a you know, significant, let's say, electromagnetic impact. It takes all of that systems out on one side of the planet. Absolutely, I never kind of uh, thought mm-hmm. of that side of things. So that's, that's it was interesting uh, perspective. And now I just want to say that uh, it, 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 it's related to the digital dependency, that mm-hmm. if you are truly dependent on the digital systems like we have, uh, we don't, we, we don't uh, keep our data on, on the paper. Everything is on di- in digital format in somewhere in the databases. And if you, if you depend on that, almost 100%, then the question is how you can actually ensure that, that nothing happens. And then you, have, then you start to think all sorts of different risks. And then, of course, the measures are just, you know, the, the, the ways how, you, how to mitigate this. Yeah. And what, so for running the data embassies, I remember initially they were actually put in the actual Estonian embassy locations for a period of time. And they've started moving them into proper data centers because they provide much more resiliency, availability, protection stuff. Um, where I remember reading that, you know, the, the first one was in Luxembourg. Um, is there plans to scale that out further or is there already, has it already been happening? Uh, yes, we have plans because there are, uh, yes, the first location as the pilot project uh, was done in Luxembourg, but, uh, but uh, we still, uh, there are, we also think that uh, the, the possibility to keep the data in our uh, close to our embassies, or at least on the embassy's territory, it's also a, a, a good aspect because um, at the moment the, the Luxembourg we can call it data embassy, but yeah. uh, in, the, in the according to the international agreements, it's not considered as the uh, embassy territory. So it's not the Estonian territory. And if somebody, for example, physical attack against the data center, we cannot say that it was attack against the Estonian territory. If you keep the data in our Embassy territory, then the attack against the embassy is against Estonia. So there are different aspects as well. So we still develop the concept further. But the difficulty is that uh, where we have embassies, there is not always the best internet connectivity to duplicate data in these locations. It's kind of like a technical, uh, you know, we have to consider different aspects. So the case is that we develop it further and uh, let's say how, how we finalize that. Right. And just a little bit, going back just on the Cyber Defense League piece, again, one thing that uh, a lot of countries have been in, investing into cyber offensive as well, um, into offensive capabilities, and it's been on the increase, you know, 
mostly for you know preemptive type of scenarios. Um, you know, it, how how much is the government you know working on offensive capabilities, and is that and also including the cyber defense league as well? Are they also considered an offensive team? Uh, yes, not uh, maybe so much in the, the defense league, but um, in the defense forces certainly we have cyber command in our defense forces, and uh, it, it, it's already I think several years ago we declared that uh, we consider cyberspace the same way as other uh, physical places like land, sea, and airspace. So we certainly need capabilities, uh, uh, military capabilities for for cyber operations as well. So we do that. But of course, we can, I cannot comment it to, you know, specifically that what kind of capabilities we have. Absolutely. No, no. Um, if, you know, for other countries, you know, what, I, one thing that I've always remembered was around the ROI side of things. I mean, how much, how much is the, the, the digital, you know, ICT systems for Estonia, how much is it helping the society, you know, other than just, you know, doing things online? Um, what's the value to the people? I, I remember uh, a number of years back, maybe it's four or five years, uh, around this calculation that it was something about six days GDP per year uh, that it was actually saving it and you know, wasted time. People not having to do queues, not having to wait for days for prescriptions or, or so forth and medical uh, appointments with doctors. Um, where is that right now at the moment? You know, where's the value and what's that calculation happening today? Yeah, the value is huge. To to calculate very precisely, it's probably not possible, but we, we can do the rough calculation. I just give, for, to, to illustrate the situation, I can give an example. I was, uh, I had a course, so I, I went to school in the United States, I think it was 2005, when we had the first elections in Estonia. And uh, I think it was the first time when we were able to elect parliament electronically, so over the internet, using the electronic identification method. So I was in the States. My course mate was from Belgium. And in Belgium, the, the voting is mandatory. So if they don't vote, they get the fine. So the, my, my classmate had to vote. But because they didn't have the electronic voting system, uh, he had to travel two times to the uh, Washington D.C. first to get the papers in order to fill all sorts of formats, and the second time uh, to to actually vote and then give the vote to the embassy people. So for, he said that the whole procedure took about two weeks to do. And then I showed to him that uh, how we do in Estonia. I just opened my laptop, I logged in with uh, my digital identification card. And uh, I did the voting in two minutes. So you can see, two minutes versus two, two weeks. And <laughs> we have calculated the way that, uh, yeah, it's a lot of money. And every Estonian uses the digital uh, identification card for giving uh, signatures. Uh, the person can probably save uh, at least one week per, per year, or probably even more. And one week, Per year is about two percent of GDP, and two percent of GDP is a huge number. Uh, it's actually the two percent of GDP is the number that uh, NATO countries, NATO allies, uh, are requested to invest to the national defense. So we can say that using digital identification and digital signature, we can afford the military forces. That's actually that's a really good perspective on it. So there's a, 
Mike, Mike, what 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 if the U.S. Exactly. was doing something like that to save even two percent GDP per year? <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's. Uh, I think we could save a lot more, uh, probably, uh, just based on uh, all the bureaucracy. But <laughs> again, there's so many uh, so many considerations. I think in the U.S. Um, around privacy and security and government that it it becomes like this intractable problem. I, you know, as you were talking, I'm trying to think like how, how does the U S you know, how, how would something like this happen in the U S and how could it make, you know, how do you make sure that, um, it's really seen as, as that the government's seen as a service provider, which I don't think that, I think that right there, that's, that's the first hurdle. Um, and so, but yeah, no, I think, um, it would be interesting to see. And, and I think the, the ROI arguments, um, are definitely very effective. Um, I also think it's really interesting to think about the, the geo, you know, the, when you start mapping cybersecurity and cyberspace onto actual geolocation and, um, because that's one of the biggest challenges is cyberspace exists in an abstract universe but then does tie back down into physical systems, whether it's, you know, you only have so many connections. This country only has so many connections to other countries coming in on the internet, like actual physical connections or data centers and, and the rest of it. I think that's a, that's a huge challenge for every country moving forward is this sort of globalization of information at the same time, keeping um, your citizens rights protected even as their data exists in other places around the world where maybe those those rights don't exist um or and, and i think it's a huge challenge i'm curious like when you guys are are thinking about the 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 digital embassies and how you're it, it sounds like that's the reason for putting them at actual physical embassies because you still have that um control is that fair uh, yes, yes, I think that that's uh, for certain data, like uh, basic registers, like a population registry, business registry, it makes a lot of sense because this is the data that we have to, we, we have to ensure the security uh, with all possible ways. But uh, you're really right that there are many, many services that uh, are provided globally. Uh, like we we probably all use Microsoft Office uh, software to 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 do our you know keep the calendar and do some other other things exchange emails and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, the question is always that uh, it's not the, only the question in the context of Microsoft, but uh, the question is that where the company keeps the data and do they use the global different sites globally? Like maybe they keep in, in India or in China or in, in some other country. So we have to certainly ensure that uh, wherever this uh, or what, what the operations that the private businesses do, uh, providing services to us, we have to ensure the security there as well. And the question and or the challenge is these days that how to do that. So uh, one way how the whole Europe does that or European Union is throughout the uh, general data protection uh, law. I, I know that when we mention laws, you know, it gets really boring. But the real, real question is that uh, we want to make sure that the companies who provide services to our citizens, that uh, wherever these companies are, and it doesn't matter in in which jurisdiction, they have to respect the laws of our uh, European Union uh, citizens. So basically, we have we our logic is that the data. Uh, belongs to the citizen 
and we have to make sure that the businesses respect that. So, so Raul, that's an interesting. So, it's got me thinking. Kind of, you know, now my my innovation thinking hat is is coming on at the moment, and it got me kind of thinking when, when you're saying. I, I remember absolutely the data embassy. with the part was around the 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 data that was actually bound to sovereign law. So, you know, citizens' data that was bound by the the law in Estonia that had to be maintained, and 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 the whole concept was that you weren't allowed to keep that data outside because it was breaching the, the, the law side of things. So, and that was the idea to be able to put it on the countries. But now it kind of get me thinking about, there's there's two type, types of data here. There's the data that's bound by the law, such as the population registry and, and other types of, of specific, whether it being tax returns and, and so forth. And then you've got other types of data, which is just simply the type of data that's you know flowing through the likes of you know, technology providers out there, social media and so forth. And, you know, it gets into, there's two concepts. There's one is, you know, absolutely the data embassies is when it gets into those really, uh, uh, the legal boundaries. So that's really where the framework is. And I remember a conversation I had many years ago it was around the early days of GDPR with one of the uh, uh, ministers in the European courts. And the way that he, he put it to me was GDPR was, it was like putting, you know, that putting a flag on data that it was like, you know, in, in international waters, that when you put a flag on that data, no matter where it travels in cyberspace, you want to have some type of boundaries of legal binding agreement. And that was the whole idea of GDPR was that as data flew from port to port, data center to data center, it didn't really matter where it ended up being located, that that flag on that piece of data being GDPR meant that you had a legal framework that was bound to it. Um, and that allowed innovation to happen, allowed you know technology to avail and, and, and data to really keep that ownership of citizens. So it gets me into that is GDPR and data embassies are really work hand in hand um, with achieving those two concepts of sovereign data and uh, citizens' data and allowing it to work together. So um, that's an interesting kind of ability. I think many countries around the world can probably, um, you know, even countries within Europe can take that approach to looking at sovereign data plus citizens' data as two separate items. But I think this is an idea for many countries to, to adopt to something similar. So therefore, we're not trying to put firewalls up to prevent data from going beyond the firewall. It's more legal frameworks that allows it to work freely. As someone who has to, like as an individual who likes GDPR from a, my own individual <laughs> perspective, but then also Cybrary, right? We're global. We, we deal with user data around the mm -hmm. world. Um, I do find it interesting and, and, and somewhat frustrating that, like, for example, I firmly believe all of the data about our users belongs to our users. Uh, we have a B2B offering, um, mm -hmm. but the idea with Cybrary is you're, you're, um, it's a career development platform. You're with us for life. We don't really care what company you work for at the time. Um, but we do have a, a B2B offering where we're selling the ability for a company mm -hmm. to provide Cybrary to their employees. And it's frustrating to sort of get into these conversations with these businesses who believe they now own the data. A lot of European countries think of us as a data processor when my feeling is, no, the users are the owners. We're providing you access to this information. That's what you're paying us for. And these users are signing up and saying, yes, I agree to allow this company yeah. to see my data. And so I think there's still all this really gray matter in GDPR because these are arguments I'm not winning with the businesses who are like, no, these are, these are our employees. That's our data. Um, and yes, they have rights to that data, but it's mm -hmm. still our data. And it, it, it's a, 
it's, it's a little frustrating. And then I also think about as other countries come online and they create their own versions of GDPR, which may be very, very different than the European and American views of data, mm-hmm. where they might say things like, no, as a government, we have every right to, to we have access mm-hmm. to that data, not the citizens. And so how you create that patchwork mm-hmm. and framework of understanding who's this user and where are they located and where are they a citizen and what laws do they have to, do we have to map to? It is a little um, uh, daunting to think about the future if everybody starts coming out with different frameworks that are contradictory. Um, So I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, Mm -hmm. it's one of those interesting things that we'll see play out over the next uh, few years. Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. I, I think yeah. as well that uh, what we what we're gonna see in the future is that uh, different uh, different cultures or different uh, how to say societies think think differently about this the, the data ownership and, and protection as well. And uh, and it's very very possible that uh, we're gonna see that uh, uh, how the how the internet and uh, how the services are going to be split between different cultures. So maybe there is one logic in. Uh, I don't want. I want. I don't want to draw very big lines, but uh, let's say the way that maybe in Asia there is one understanding how to how to do things, but in in Western world there is different, and uh, there is nothing to do. I think there's there's going to be some kind of boundaries between these different uh, logics. Yeah, no, and of I course agree. it's not good for the for the. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that's what I was going to say. I think like when I think about it as an implementer the easiest solution is just to say, you know what, we're going to stand up a, a, a cybrary in Europe that's going to adhere to all the European standards. We're going to stand up a cybrary in Asia and we'll figure out how, like when somebody moves from location A to location B to transfer their information. And, and this, you know, and I think um, mm-hmm. it saddens me a little bit to think about taking this abstract cybersecurity goes across all borders, all nations, and then having to map it back onto a globe for no other, you know, for, for no other reason, but at the same time, good reasons, because society's culture and, you know, laws exist to protect citizens. And that's, you know, it's, it'll be an interesting uh, metamorphosis over time um, of the internet, I believe. Yeah, exactly. Of course, we, of course, nobody wants to actually, actually, we don't want that this happens, right. but it, it, it happens because the, there are different the different governments and different logics, and uh, we we have seen it uh, throughout the history that, that the first uh, when new innovation takes place, there is a little bit uh, this kind of like a wild west time, and after that the countries start to organize this area, and uh, exa- this is exactly what we we're gonna see in the related to the global internet and the electronic systems as well. Yeah, right. And ultimately, for me, for me, one of the things I I kind of came to realize is that is, you know, things like GDPR and, and when we talk about data privacy and data rights and data ownership, it ultimately really comes down to, is it, for me, it's a data rights management issue, just like you do with, you know, you know, any other industry like music or copyrights and so forth and IP. It comes down to this is the IP of the person. And therefore, you know, rather than it being an industry of selling data, but will be an, an industry of renting it's a more become uh, of a, a kind of you're giving it for a period of time. Just like, you know, when you, you buy music, you're no longer buying music. You're paying for the service of streaming it. You don't own the actual copy. Uh, same with movies and other types of things. You're no longer, you know, buying the physical and owning that for, little, you know, whatever generations to come. It gets into that you're going to, you know, have it for the period of time you have that service. 
And the same with the citizen and mm-hmm. technology providers. It comes into that it gets into that this is really the citizen providing a service agreement for those companies to rent their data for that time they're using service, not to sell it, not to own it, not to take, you know, uh, economical advantage of it, but simply they're, you know, as the product or service that they're delivering, they're able to use that for the period of time that they're subscribed. So we're all one there's only one question. Who is the data owner? <laughs> that, was, that was a big question I had many, many years ago when it was the, Sony had the uh, EU presidency. That was the big question that I raised to the Supreme Court at the time during the data, the data uh, conference that was at the time, was who owns the data under GDPR. And it's not actually specifically specified in GDPR that who's the data. It's assumed it's the state. It's classified as the data subject. Who is the subject but, of ownership? But it gets a, even more complicated about ownership when you yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. The, the, the not just the data that I own about myself, but then if I, as a company, start aggregating data and and it's about my the usage of my service. When you know you're allowing me, you're using my service. Okay. I'm collecting this information about you, and you decide to leave my service. That data that is specific about how you, you know the sort of aggregate and analyzed information that says like, hey, these courses were performed really well. And this, you know, however you want to sort of look at it, that's where it starts to really get gray is when somebody says, I want to delete my information and I don't want you to have access to it anymore. Does that also mean what, what's the impact to all of these other systems that have been built on aggregating all of this data across our user base? Um, and and who owns, (laughs) who owns that aggregated version of the data? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's where it really starts to get messy. Yeah. But I, but I think uh, at least in Europe, it's clear now, according to the GDPR, all data that is related to the person belongs to the person. Simple as that. There is no, you know, uh, gray areas. I think uh, where the gray area comes is that different uh, countries have different approaches that Europe has this approach that, uh, uh, person owns the data. I, as I understand, the U.S. the logic is rather that the company who gathers and collects the data is the data owner. And of course, in in some countries uh, uh, like Russia and China, they they promote the idea that uh, the government owns the data because it's right. in their jurisdiction. <laughs> so different ways. But of course, uh, from European perspective, it's I, I, I would say that it's quite clear. At least for us, you, you, you I, I say do. that, but that's where a lot of the, the discussions that I have with European co- companies, who <laughs> getting back to that B two B example, where they believe that they own the data about their employees because they're the ones paying for the service, and I'm making the argument: no, you don't own that data. You're just getting access to it. It's the the data subject yeah. who owns it. There's definitely still. I mean, so while the, there might not be gray area in the law. There's certainly, I think, understanding mm-hmm. and people getting to that level of understanding. Yeah, interpretation of the subjects. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> the, the example you gave, gave for uh, some time ago was very good. That uh, the, from European perspective, the data is flagged, like like mm-hmm. you know, yeah. putting the flag on the on the ship going to the international waters. So from European perspective, the data is flagged. The flag belongs to the person, and wherever the state is, is belongs to the flag owner. So yes, no, I, I yeah. like that. It's that a good example. Actually, yeah, it was. It was during. I remember it was like 2011. I was doing this. The Ministry of Transportation for Europe, and and one of the the uh, Supreme you know Supreme Court was there. We were having this discussion for GDPR at the time, <laughs> and it was like I was I was working in a lot of the maritime industry. At the time we were working in things like autonomous shipping. 
And I was, at the time, I was a bit, actually, to be honest, I was against GDPR at the time. My mindset was like, why are you punishing these companies, you know, for, um, you, know, you know, being attacked by bad people? And the minister kind of took me aside and was like, let me explain it as I, as I see it. And that's how he explained it to me was taking international waters. Now, ironically, the funny thing was we had a meeting about five, six years later, around 2015. It was just getting into the final drafts of GDPR. And uh, we were having a roundtable discussion. And uh, at the same time, um, we were actually you know, having the meeting. And uh, we realized that was the time when we realized that GDPR didn't apply in international waters, which was the <laughs> conversation that we had. <laughs> and that's when shortly after that, we came into a crisis meeting with the uh, International Maritime uh, Organization in order to build this framework for international waters for cybersecurity and data protection. And the ironic thing was, this is when all of the technology providers came out with these uh, data center barges and <laughs> where they'd float them out to international waters in order to, you know, try to get around some of the legal aspects of things. So it was an interesting kind of series of events. But yeah. one thing what I would like to, to mm-hmm. you know, if, you know, one thing that would you, what would you recommend for other countries, you know, how, you know, if you were to recommend to other countries of how, you know, what they should do and taking from the lessons that Estonia has learned over these years and some of the kind of, you know, where, where should they think about starting? Um, what types of systems or what types of kind of prioritizations to take? What, what did you, you know, what recommendations would you have for other countries if they were to take the same journey? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I think that this, there's a one thing that I would like to promote, that's the digital identification, because it's like a passport to the digital world. So we have uh, the physical world, and if we want to travel, we have our passport with us, so we can um, identify ourselves. In the digital world, there is exactly the same need. If you don't have this digital passport, it is impossible to identify and, and uh, do legal activities. So what we can do with this digital ID is to, to give legally binding uh, signatures, which means that I can do all legal operations wherever we are, we, I am around the world. I can even vote for the parliament or, or the local elections, etc., etc. So I can do everything. So I, And I really cannot imagine anymore that uh, how to ensure the basic level of security without having this digital identification. I simply can't, uh, you know, I can't imagine that how it's possible. Okay. Because if you don't have that, then you have to deal with certain incidents on daily basis over and over again. It gets really boring. Absolutely. <laughs> the foundation for me is really a strong event and access management foundation. That's really where everything mm-hmm. is built upon. And, you know, for some services, you can decide yeah. to use it or not to use it that don't require, you know, you can still have some anonymity, exactly. anonymity um, but there's certain services that you must have. And, and many of those today for many countries are still in that physical form. And I think this thing has really taken that innovation wise. Mm-hmm. So kind of next thing is that, you know, what, what next, where, where is the Sony, where is the Sony taking it? What's the next kind of phase I've seen over the years, many services like, you know, prescriptions online um, logistics has been amazing. I, I can't tell you how well, one of the things I've, I've found in the last, you know, couple of months is things like ordering things online, um, you know, home delivery side of things, you know, online school has been, you know, increasing significantly. Um, so a lot of these have allowed, you know, you know, the country to continue providing services in a digital sense. Um, so what next, where, where's the next direction? What's the next big thing? Mm-hmm. I think the next big thing is probably the, the uh, application 
uh, or an uh, apps uh, consolidation. So it means that at the moment we have different uh, different apps from, from the government's perspective. So we have different ministries or, or agencies who provide different services, but you still need to go to different places to do the thing. But uh, we want to integrate this. That uh, according to the life events, like if you if you if you if you get married, for example, then then there is a one procedure. You don't need to go to different uh, different digital uh, environments to do the, the the official procedure. You do the one one flow. Uh, if you have to, if you get the first child, for example, or if you get a child second or, or third one, you same way. It's a life event. You do this through one, like uh, like uh, uh, like a one through one application, and etc. So I think that's probably the next uh, next big thing, and of course everything related related to the artificial intelligence solution. So even better automation, automatization, and and uh, and uh, effectiveness that comes through that. So I think these two aspects are the are the biggest. So I completely, you know, for me, I've always taken the concept is that, you know, I remember 10, 15 years ago when I was working, we were really focused around, it was called software-defined networks, really looking at it from a software perspective. Mm-hmm. And I learned, you know, from Estonia that that was the wrong way to view what you're doing. My goal is not to deploy software. My goal is to provide services and thinking about, well, what is the, you know, top services that I need to provide to the people? And how do I make those as seamless as possible? Mm-hmm. What's the things that people do the most often? And I think it's great, you know, starting with the taxes and voting and, and, and banking and stuff. But uh, it's really getting to that point where it's really thinking about that I don't need, you know, there's one process that might affect many different systems. How do I make that process as simple and as, as, as intuitive as possible? That doesn't mean I have to go to different places, you know, such as marriage and, and kids. You would have to go to different locations in order to, to do that flow. That simplifying that is amazing, but but also you know how to how to make the system uh, more automated and mm-hmm. even invisible as well. So for example, uh, we have a very good very good case that uh, uh, somebody has asked sometimes that how we organize the uh, driving licenses. But what we don't need driving licenses anymore. We don't have driving licenses in Estonia because why do you have that if all information is in in the data center or in the register? So when the police stops you, they identify you uh, according to the picture that they have in their database. You say you say your name, they identify you, and then they know exactly that whether or not you have the driving license or not. So we don't need to carry that anymore. So that means that you you eliminate the ineffective parts of the process and you deal only with this uh, effective part. I agree. It's always about, I think what is that it's not about showing as much data as possible. It's about asking the right questions, I've always found. Is that all that the police officer needs to know is that, are you legal to drive? <laughs> so simply, that's the question that they have. And that question <laughs> might mean, are you old enough? Do you have insurance? Is this car yours? That's the things. So their, their question is, are you legal to drive? And all of those different pieces of information might exactly. courses. So I remember years ago in, in UK, you might get stopped by a police officer and they say, show me your driver's license. I want to see your, your car documents. Uh, where's your insurance forms? And you would have to have open your glove compartment. They would have a pile of documents you'd have to go and show. So, and that contains lots of information. Mm-hmm. It might contain how much you paid. It might contain other types of sensor information, you know, telephone numbers, things that they don't really necessarily need to know. All they need to know is that all those documents valid mm-hmm. and they don't necessarily need to see them. 
And I think it's always getting down to asking the right questions and, and providing trusted sources that can provide the answers to those questions. It's ultimately kind of word of the goal. Exactly. Um, and I have one question though, is, you know, the, the, I, mm. the, bots, the, the, you know, we talked about a little bit of, you know, going down this automation path. who came up with the name Krat? And, and can you tell me what Krat means in Estonia? <laughs> as far as I know, it's a little, <laughs> a little devil um, or something like some type of like uh, elf or something. Uh, yeah, it, it was like, um, <laughs> it comes from our folklore. There was a story. We have a, one very famous writer in Estonia. And, uh, he wrote the story that uh, when Estonians were living in the countryside long time ago, they were not very rich. And, and in order to make their uh, work easier, they, they kind of like uh, uh, created a, a, how to say, they put together like a doll that, that actually became alive and did the work for them. So basically, it was kind of like, a, uh, uh, <laughs> I would say, artificial servant uh, that uh, everybody were able to make with wood and, you know, nails and, and, and you know, create this kind of thing that uh, did all the hard work for themselves, for them. So so that's where this, uh, and oh. it was called Krat. And uh, <laughs> that's, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a funny story actually behind it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe that's something I'll, I'll, I'll have over a coffee with him to find out what. But yeah, because I've never, I was that, I have an idea of the story where it came from, but I didn't have it in that perspective that way. That it was about having somebody doing the work for you. And I, yeah. now it makes sense. <laughs> now it makes sense why why it's called crap. So, but uh, Raul, it's been awesome having you on this show, and I think uh, you know it's been great and and listening to you know, some of the uh, amazing things that Estonia is doing. And I hope that, you know, this continues and that other countries can, can really continue. And I, I completely agree that it doesn't come down to the size of the country. I think it really comes down to the political stability and motivation to make things happen. And ultimately that other countries can really, you know, exactly. they can really take a service service provider approach. How can we provide better services? Not just how we can maintain the status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what's critical. So it's amazing having you on the show. I'd really thank you. Is there any last comments, anything you would like to share with the audience uh, before we close it? Uh, I think it's worth, if if we can do everything with 1.5 million people, that you can imagine what you can do over 300 million. So (laughs) it's a lesson for the US. (laughs) So for sure. So, um, Mike, Mike, any closing words for yourself? Any thoughts? Has this been educational for you? Uh, oh, yeah, definitely. It's been uh, very interesting. Um, and I've enjoyed the conversation very much. Uh, so I, I appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Many thanks, Roland. And, and, yeah. uh, hopefully I get to catch up with you at some point uh, in, in, in the physical world. Um, so we'll see how, how, how things evolve. Uh, but for the audience, it's amazing. You know, uh, listen to Raul and what uh, Estonia has been doing. And I think for, you know, this is something out there that you have a voice to be able to, you know, demand similar things and experiences for yourselves um, and how important security is and, and how important identity and access management is really to the foundation. And ultimately, the real goal between is that trust and transparency and, you know, building services that work for us. Um, I think we do need many more crats in the world. Um, you know, something you can get into the, the uh, uh, Caleb uh, uh, Boyg stories, uh, which I'll put a little bit of notes in the, in the show notes afterwards. Uh, but do, you know, many thanks for attending the show. Um, do catch up with us every two weeks. You know, we'll tune in for the podcast, subscribe. Um, you get to listen to myself and Mike going on once in a while, but uh, sometimes you get into our, our rants and tantrums. 
but I hope it's always a fun discussion. Um, stay safe and uh, you know, catch up with you soon and have a safe day. Thank you. Learn how your team can get a free trial of Cybrae for Business by going to www.cybrae.it slash business. This podcast is also brought to you by Thycotic, the leader in privileged access management. To learn more, visit www.thycotic.com.